Hi everyone, I'm Kara Scott and welcome to this episode of The Heart of Poker sponsored by 888Poker. This is not your typical poker interview. I use a modified set of increasingly personal questions developed by psychologists 25 years ago. They had a theory that this increased intimacy over a short period of time could make strangers potentially fall in love. I've shortened the list of questions for time and updated some of them, but otherwise this is actually what they came up with as a shortcut to get to know someone on a deeper level fast. And I'm here to help you all fall in love with my next guest. Tony Dunst is an accomplished professional poker player with, among a ton of other online and live results, two bracelets and a WPT title. He's also one half of the iconic World Poker Tour commentary team, alongside Vince Van Patten, having stepped into the very big shoes of the late and much-loved Mike Sexton, who retired after 15 years. Tony started with the WPT as the host of the Raw Deal segments and quickly made himself an unmissable part of the WPT brand. Our sponsor, 888 Poker, is partnering together with WPT Deep Stacks this month for a really special online festival from April 18th to 26th, and I'm so glad I could get him on here to chat with me. Thanks so much for coming on, Tony. Yeah, of course, Kara. Good to be here. Are you up for a little bit of, uh, you know, emotional digging? <laughs> sure. Dig away. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to start with the first set of questions. There's three sets. The first one's kind of an easy one. Do you believe in love at first sight, and have you ever had your heart broken? Uh, love at first sight. No. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I must've had my heart broken. I mean, I've definitely been heartbroken over, you know, breakups in the past. Right. Um, you know, if you're in a long relationship with somebody and then it doesn't work out, you know, generally there's a, there's a definite amount of heartache or just like, mm. uh, you know, lingering feelings afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny because almost every poker player I've talked to has also said, they just don't believe in love at first sight. I don't actually don't think I believe in it either, to be honest. Um, but I think there is something to the idea that like chemicals and pheromones and certain people are like physically and chemically a match for the other person. Although that's probably not as romantic as the psychologists were thinking when they came up with the question. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you want to be when you grew up, and why didn't you become that if if you didn't? <laughs> I wanted to be a stockbroker. Oh, I wow. <laughs> became that. Like in many ways, I became that. I think that in my mind, when I was younger, a stockbroker was just sort of like a gambler spectator, like somebody who was in the pit in the middle of the action, <laughs> yelling their bids out and this and that. And like, you know, now being in the poker, gambling, crypto space, that feels a lot what I became. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I feel like I landed pretty close to that childhood want. Do you think that it's like the adrenaline of that or the competition or, or what is it about that kind of arena that really draws you in? I think I enjoy the uncertainty. I Ooh. think that I'm really drawn to the uncertainty of something like a poker tournament where you're always sort of on the edge of your seat hmm. or when you take a position in a stock or a cryptocurrency, not really knowing what's going to happen next. Um, and, and the idea of trying to sort of like predict the future or get a more accurate glimpse of reality that will lead you to a more accurate bet about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, I find those all really interesting. Do you find yourself um, being fairly like widely read now, especially with crypto? There's so much involved in it. And there are so many different kind of sections and different industries that are all kind of feeding into that. To understand it really well, you kind of have to know a ton about a lot of different things. So do you, you know, have pretty varied and diverse interests now? 
I believe that's the case. I will say that, like many people, I've gradually transitioned from reading a lot to watching a lot or listening yeah. a lot in the case of you know YouTube videos, podcasts, things like that. So I still do some reading, but I agree with the idea that if you're going to be gambling and spectating on things, it will benefit you to keep an open mind and have a, you know a broad spectrum of resources to draw from, but also mm -hmm. to identify the ones that you believe are the most credible and transparent with mm. their beliefs, positions, and results. So people skills as well. And, you know, the people that are involved in the different projects, that's really important to you? Well... I'm not really the guy to judge a project's likely success based on who's involved with mm. it. It's more like I communicate with a number of people in the gambling space and, you know, I consider some of them to be more, um, how to put it, more likely to see what they want to see and others mm. to be more objective. Huh. Okay. All right. Next question would be, if you could change anything about the way that you were raised, what would that be? Warmer climate. <laughs> That's Warmer climate. Wisconsin's too cold. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty easy question. I, I've, no one's ever given me that answer before. I like it. Um, okay. Well, what skills would you have that make you valuable in a zombie apocalypse? If there were teams of people and you know you wanted to prove right. that you were going to do well, yeah. what, what do you have? Uh I'm I'm a pretty quick person, pretty quick athletic dude, so I feel like I could probably, you know, like outrun the zombies or like smash mm -hmm. them in the head and then get away before they bit me. Um but also like quick on my feet, so if things got dangerous quickly, I imagine that I could I could problem solve in that moment if necessary. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, you know, I, I like to think that I could outrun the zombies and if we somehow got trapped in the zombies problem solve my way out <laughs> if there was if there was a way out. Right. Okay, well, let's go a little bit more on the personal side of things now. Um, for what in life do you feel the most grateful? Certainly my uh, family, friends, my health, really just kind of the basics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm close to my family. I'm visiting them now for Easter, and it's been uh, almost nine months since I've seen them because of the pandemic. Mm. And uh, I was really looking forward to it and just kind of, you know, just have a, have and come from a great family, both immediate and mm. – uh, and broader. And then, uh, you know, I have incredibly savvy, sharp friends who have taught me so much about poker, gambling, investing, cryptocurrency. And in many ways, it was their leads that often brought me to the best investments. You know, hmm. um, a couple of guys in particular that just were sort of like, hey, you know, you should buy this thing. And I was like, okay, you know, like, <laughs> I'm sure you can explain it to me, but I'll just going to trust your word first. And then you can explain it to me afterwards. Hmm. It takes a lot of trust in someone. You have to really know them pretty well to be able to do that. So um, do you consider yourself a really good judge of character or is it kind of the length of time that you've spent with these people that help you see their character? I'll phrase it like this. Sometimes in gambling and investing, it feels like we have this big test coming up, but <laughs> you're allowed to have the smartest kid in class give you his answers. So like... <laughs> If you already have this long record of him being the smartest kid in class and getting, you know, straight mm. A's and everything, then just like don't question his answers, even if they don't intuitively feel all that right to you. Just like, right. okay, if I'm allowed to copy your answers, then I'll take the A. <laughs> okay. So when did you last sing, either to yourself or to someone else? Uh, I don't know. Probably just, you know, had my headphones in, was mumbling along to some song. 
Uh, I did some karaoke back in the day when I was in Australia. I was a part of a group of friends that liked to go to karaoke every week. So that was sort of a regular thing for a while. But Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't tell you the last time I did karaoke. You know, we've all been hiding inside for a year plus. And the last time I did XYZ is starting to get harder and harder to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a go-to song for when you're doing karaoke? Uh, I like some of the Blink-182 songs because those were, you know, huge when I was in high school. So it's just right. like songs I know the words to because I heard them a gajillion times. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, how important is music in your life then? Do you listen to it every day? Is it something that you use to like, uh, like give you energy or help you relax? Or is it kind of not a, not a big part of your life? I would say not a big part, although I listen to music every day, um, Uh just kind of passively in my headphones. When I talk to people who are really into music and like love going to concerts and know tons about music, I'm like, okay, there's clearly a gap there. Like, (laughs) I'm not really that interested in those things. To be honest, I generally don't even like live music very much. Uh Um, And I I hate when I like go to a restaurant and they're like, we got a live band. I'm like, great. I was hoping to talk to the person that I came here with, but I guess you do you. Yeah. Is there any uh, musical act that you've seen more than once? Yeah, not that I know of. I mean, I, I remember in like high school, I had friends who were in a band, so I would right. see their band sometimes. But like, there's no well-known major music act that I've like gone out of my way to see twice. Right. Okay. Um, the last question of this first section is, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any ability or quality, what would it be? Interesting. Um, I mean, that's a very, very broad question. Oh yeah. But uh, I guess I would, uh, I would like it if my, you know, like genes could repair themselves, so I didn't age and my huh. you know, body and mind didn't fall apart over time. I mean, if you, you know, what is it like your tellurides or whatever yeah. it is that come <laughs> undone over time? Like, it'd be great if they didn't, and I could just sort of like preserve my health and preserve my mental clarity going forward in life, even if that didn't mean I was like going to live forever or anything like that. Which I'm not right. sure would even be fun. Um, it would be great if I just, you know, my body and mind were able to repair themselves you know, until the end of my life and I would just have good health. That'd be great. Huh. There's actually another question. I didn't have it down here, but it's in the study as well. And I'm going to have to just kind of do it from memory because I don't have it written down, but it's if you could live to 90 and you knew that for the last 30 years of your life, you could either have the mental capacity or the body of a 30 year old, which would Uh you pick? Um, so Assuming that I choose the body, does my mind just gradually decline like a normal 60 like to 90 normal. year old? Yeah. Man, to, to tell you the truth, most of the people that are like in their 80s or 90s in my family are still sh- – I got my – my aunt is like 92, 93, and I call mm-hmm. her sometimes, and she is on it. So like nice. I'm not even worried about my mental decline that much. I think I uh, huh. I got some lucky genes there, so I'll take the, the healthy 30-year-old body. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, second set of questions here. They start to get a little bit more personal as we go through. Um, if a crystal ball could tell you the truth about anything, your life, your future, something that already happened even, what would you want to know? So like, is there anything where, I don't know, maybe a deal has gone wrong somewhere and you've always wondered what happened or something uh, with a partner or anything at all, even just in the future? Well, I mean, if the crystal ball can predict the future, then I'm going to choose some highly volatile asset and then ask the crystal ball, like, is it going to blow up or go to zero and then bet accordingly? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah. I'm asking someone who, yeah, who bets. So there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Is there anything that you've dreamed about doing for a long time that you haven't done yet? Um, I would like to win seven figures in a poker tournament. Nice. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Sometimes I see people win this huge sum of money in a poker tournament and I'm like, that looks so awesome. And like, <laughs> oh my God, like you parlayed a hundred extra money or whatever it is. And, you know, I just, yeah. And, uh, when I think, you know, like when you and I were coming up in poker in mm. the like, maybe, you know, early two thousands, almost all the major televised tournaments had a seven yeah. figure payday for winning. So that kind of became the numbers I was anchored to. Right. Yeah, I always found that too. When things started to get smaller after obviously Black Friday and then everything was kind of splintering and becoming, you know, smaller pools of, of players. These big European events even where it would have been like 600 or 700,000 euros for first place, if not right. a million, were starting to become like 150,000, 200,000. Like it really went down. And I remember having to like smack myself on the head a little bit and be like, this is still a lot of money. Still a lot like, of money. Yeah, don't be yeah. don't be ridiculous about this because I remember like we'd all kind of sit around and talk about you know the bad, the good old days. It is still a lot of money, but man, it was a lot of money. It was crazy, when we came and it up. was also yeah. more top heavy back then. Is a big oh point. yeah. Like I think the changes were good for poker ecology going mm. forward. But like when I was coming up watching Mike and Vince on the World Poker Tour, like mm. every week these guys were competing for like one point four million or whatever it was. Yeah, so. yeah, it was massive. So you must hear this a lot as a question, but what is it like to be on the show and not mm. just on the show anymore, but like the commentary team of something that you watched when you were growing up? Is it kind of what you would have hoped for? Yes, it is. It's kind of surreal nice. because as you said, it was something I watched every week growing up mm. and I really enjoy the people that I work with. I was hanging nice. out with Vince in LA like a week ago on the tennis court. The guy hmm. still got it. Um, you know, love hanging out with uh, Lynn and Matt and the entire team at the WPT. Still get to travel and enjoy playing mm. poker, talking about poker, studying poker. So, yeah, it, it very much lived up to expectations. And uh, it, to this day, it just feels like a, a great fit. I love being there. So it was a big kind of departure from being a player and being strictly a player. Um, yeah. What kind of gave you the push to go and do that? There wasn't any push. It was just right place, right time. Like the WPT mm. held open auditions for the raw deal segment yeah. that I used to host. And it was like, oh, cool. You know, that sounds like a fun thing to just kind of randomly go out for. <laughs> and uh, then I got hired and I was like, okay, I guess I need to figure out how to be a professional. Right. I remember when they announced that you'd gotten it and it was just like, yeah, of course. Like it just totally <laughs> made sense. It was like, yeah, of course he got it. That does, you know, we could see it. And then, yeah, to be doing what you're doing now as well, it's kind of like having a place in poker history. Which is nice because yeah. I've been part of the game or in the game for almost 20 years now. And wow. I used to love reading about poker history, where the game from, came from, Las Vegas history. I still to this day love hanging out and talking to the like, old school Vegas gambler types. And then, you know, that meant mm. Mike Sexton for a long time. And, you know, unfortunately yeah. that's not the case anymore, but now I might think of somebody like Billy Baxter, who is mm. perhaps the only man who could rival Mike Sexton in old timey gambling stories. <laughs> um, and I just, I love hearing that side of things and, uh, and thinking that, you know, I've kind of got this place in our game now and may in the future have a, you know, be a part of poker history. Mm. Okay, well, the next question is, uh, what is the greatest accomplishment in your life? So having talked about, you know, this massive accomplishment already, right. what else would there be for you? Um, 
Greatest accomplishment. Man, I, I really... Yeah, I, I apologize. I don't have a good answer for that. Because, mm. like, in many ways, what I really value in life is just having a, a close connection with my friends and family mm. um, and having my health. So, like, those all feel like the most meaningful accomplishments. And yet, you know, if you were to put somebody's resume up on paper, you might point to, like, you know, WPT wins, World mm. Series bracelet wins, or, like, you know, various other slightly more material things that have worked out for me, but I don't really know how to like rank those accomplishments. I don't have any clear, like, wow, this is the greatest accomplishment I ever <laughs> did. Like, to be honest, one of the most difficult accomplishments I ever did was, was pushing myself towards getting into like single digit body fat, because it's the huh. kind of thing that takes like three ish plus months of extremely disciplined dieting and exercise and mm. being on point with like calorie counting. So like that was one of the most difficult things I ever accomplished, but it also landed me in a hospital. So like, was it great? I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. What was that process like for you? Like, did you enjoy it at first? Nobody enjoys it. Kara. Nobody no, I was going to say it. like, for me, it's just an <laughs> alien concept. I got to be honest. Um, <laughs> I've always been interested in weightlifting, bodybuilding, and how we change our body composition. So in mm. many ways, it was like, okay, this is going to be a culmination of what I've learned and what I think I'm capable of and my ability to think long term. And I'm going to take myself from being like, you know, uh, an in shape-ish dude to somebody who's like in that peak, you know, almost ready to step on a stage kind of condition. Huh. And in the beginning, when you are on a calorie restrictive diet, I'll put it like this. The first couple of weeks are tough because your body is adjusting to the deficit. And then you kind of get into a groove and you're okay for maybe like a month, month and a half. And then it really just starts to add up and it becomes this massive mental preoccupation. Mm. It makes It really limits your social options. It makes you a little more difficult to be around because you're always thinking about food and when your next meal is going to be, but then people are like, Hey, let's go do X, Y, Z. And you're like, I can't eat that. I can't drink that. So overall it's pretty unpleasant. Yeah. Um, and it's in, it's not something I would ever do again, but it's also satisfying in the sense that after the fact, you're like, yo, I, I undertook something really difficult and I reached my goal. And now in the future, I, I really feel like, if there was some phase in my life, let's say I was injured and uh, that stopped me from exercising and as a result, I gained some weight, I feel like I have the tools to rather easily shed that weight once I was hmm. healthy again. And I do think that's a very valuable skill going forward in life, being able to keep yourself you know, just kind of in like a, a healthy body state. Right. Did you find that there were any after effects, like in terms of your metabolism or – did your body react differently when you ate food after that uh, in kind of a normal way? Not especially, but one oh, weird lucky. thing that wow. happens is that um, you have such a restrictive diet in terms of the type of foods that you can eat. You really have to avoid calorie density and often sugars. Hmm. And so when you start like veering back towards normal food, Anything with sugar tastes incredible. It tastes like euphoric, you know, like the first time you have like baked goods. It's not necessarily that you can't have any baked goods when you're on one of these diets or anything, mm. but sometimes you avoid them because they taste so damn good that it makes <laughs> everything else you eat 
taste like chalk. And so huh. you're just like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't even eat this stuff because then maybe I can enjoy some of the other food that I eat a little bit. But yeah, right. when you go back to normal food, it's just like shocking how good everything tastes for the first couple of weeks. You just like can't believe it. Right. If you could replace your meals with a pill or like one of those kind of plain smoothies and right. get everything you needed from it, are you the kind of person that would do that for a while just to see if you could or like? Um, maybe. Maybe like I, you know, I enjoy the taste of food. So mm. I'll put it this way. If like you could take the pill, especially if when you're dieting, sometimes what you have to eat gets really monotonous. Right. And after a while, you're just like, I don't want to eat more chicken and fish and rice and like, uh. mm. um, so during those stages, if you could just like take a pill and skip the like boring grinding nature of eating, that might mm. be appealing. But overall, I enjoy food and, and wouldn't want to, you know, skip the enjoyable mm. process of eating. For sure. Okay. So what is one of your most treasured memories? Do you have kind of a happy place that you go to if you need to? <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a happy place. Um, but one of my most treasured memories would probably be my time in Australia. I lived there for the better part of five years. And in particular, mm. the last year I had this like sub penthouse apartment right in central melbourne in this like really big expansive group of friends and i was having people over every week and like online poker was in a very good state at that time and it just kind of felt like a a sweet spot of my youth where right. i just sort of had anything that i wanted a really diverse social group every day was going to be fun and i was playing a game for a living that i really enjoyed so I guess when I think back, I'll, and also it was sort of before any of the responsibilities in my life. It was even before, you know, my job at the WPT, which I mm -hmm. like, but it comes with responsibilities. And so this was a very carefree phase of my life, mm -hmm. living in a place that I still uh, cherish and um, I think might just be like the most livable place in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I guess maybe that, you know, nine month stretch when I had that apartment is probably yeah. my little happy place. Nice. Um, you mentioned that you have a really close family that you adore, obviously. So the next question is, how close and warm is your own family? Do you feel like your childhood was happier than most people? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't know how to measure my childhood against other people. But yes, mm. it was definitely a happy and just very steady one. I mean, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, which is like a university city in the Midwest. So we had a very educated populace, very, um, you know, very open-minded, progressive mm. populace, but also it was this sort of like safe, quaint place, almost kind of Pleasantville-esque where uh, it's 200,000 people in the city that I grew up with. And I think there was like a 10-year stretch where we didn't have a murder or something like just bad wow. things didn't happen, you know, where I grew up. Um, and uh, which is an oversimplification, but like, you know, on the whole, that was kind of right. the mentality growing up is that we were in a pleasant little bubble and not really exposed to the mm. ills of the world. Um, so yeah, I had a, I had a very mellow fun childhood, plenty of friends to play games and sports with and, you know, family that I got along with, and, mm. you know, nice schools to go to. So I don't know how that measures up against other people's, but it was, it certainly was a good one. It sounds it. Um, so, and your parents obviously, you know, are very happy with how your life turned out. Like, what do they think about what you do for a living and, and kind of how you spend your time? Yeah, they're very much in support. Um, nice. Like many people in, I would say, our generation, they struggled with it when I first said, no, I don't really care about graduating college. I don't care about ever getting a career. I'm just going to gamble for a living. Mm. And that 
created a lot of stress for them and even tension in our relationship for a while because in fairness in their generation you know my parents are in their 60s and 70s there really was no such thing as like a professional gambler like i know there was a few doyles in the world but almost everybody else that was gambling was just that that was just like a fancy word for loser and if you were playing house edge games or you were going to poker playing games and you weren't the best player in the game or you were gambling on anything with any regularity you were losing and so their entire point of reference for somebody being a gambler was being a loser and probably deluded about their own abilities and the results that they were having. So I I do not blame my parents for their reservations when I was like in my late teens talking about, I'm never going to need a career or a day job. I'm just going to play some cards, bro. Huh. It's funny because um, for my parents, they were actually so stoked <laughs> when I started doing something a little more kind of off the beaten path. So yeah, they you know, started playing poker and started working in broadcasting. Actually, broadcasting came first. But, you know, for them, that was just like, oh, finally, because I'd been a teacher. And, you know, it's a very respectable career. And Mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends who are teachers, obviously. um, But it just, for them, they were just like, really? It just didn't kind of suit, I guess, who they thought I was. And, you know, parents know (laughs) they were right. Apparently so, yes. Yeah, it didn't last forever, that's for sure. Um, Yeah, Okay, so th- another question. This one's a little bit more probing, but how do you feel about your relationship with your mother? Yeah, very good. I call every week and nice. just kind of call to catch up. And we still have a lot in common. You know, now when I come home and visit, I'll put on whatever tennis tournament's going on and we'll watch that and then we'll go out and play. Um, you know, talk to her about our family in general. So, yeah. Nice. Okay, and if you knew in one year that you were going to die suddenly, would you change anything about the way you're living now? This feels like kind of an unfair question given the state right. of the world right now. Sure. So, yeah, you can either answer it as though, you know, coronavirus isn't a thing or that it is. It's up to you. <laughs> On the whole, no. I mean, nothing against the WPT, but I might just quit my job because it's like, hey, I've only got a year left. So, like, I'm not yeah. really trying to spend it doing, like, work stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, might just go travel the world or like spend the t- all of my time around the people that I enjoy the most, yeah. um, probably would play less poker, even though I enjoy poker. Like part of the reason I enjoy poker is it feels like I'm building towards something, whether that's excellence in my game or a better financial future. Hmm. It feels like part of what, uh, attracts me to playing poker is like, great, this is, you know, me building towards something in the future. And if there wasn't going to be one, then I don't really know why I'm grinding away at the table um, when I could prioritize relationships and the people in my life with the limited time I have left. Yeah. And the nice thing about poker for, you know, for people who've been successful at it or broadcasting as well is that it's kind of given us the chance to be able to do that if we needed to, if we wanted to, which is great. Like that kind of freedom to be able to say, even for the, for the poker players who um, retire, you know, and then come back later, or maybe they don't, but to be able to have that freedom to do that at that age, I just think we're so lucky to have been in an, in an industry that allows for that, that creates those possibilities. And I think that's what a lot of people obviously strive for, to be in that position. Very much agree, yes. Mm, yeah. Okay, last set of questions. The first one is, have you ever been genuinely terrified? Oh, I must have. Let me think about this. I must have. Um I broke my collarbone freshman year and the pain Mm. was super intense and we were going to the hospital and I still wasn't sure what was wrong. So I'm sure I was very terrified then because man, Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't think I've ever been in like a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't say that I was ever terrified in a spot like that. Man, I bet early in my poker career, there was just times when I was like playing in a game or deep in a tournament and facing a high pressure situation. And there was some level of like, you know, terror mixed into my emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that dies down over time. And if anything, you feel uh, very in control of the wheel and your emotions as you get deeper into your career. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. And when we were talking earlier, you were mentioning your friends and how important it was to you in your life. And one of your big accomplishments was to have this fantastic friend group. So what do you value most in a friendship? Are there any kind of deal breakers for you? Are there any traits that a lot of your friends do tend to possess? I think the pri- my priority for friends is honesty. Yeah. Um, I really like, even if somebody can be abrasive if they're really honest and they're being true to themselves and they're telling you what you what they think i vastly prefer that to somebody who is like pleasant but kind of phony Mm -hmm. um and so i feel like that's the personality types that i get along with are ones that are like really honest and really being themselves at all times Hmm. um and that's a big priority to me Whereas like deal breakers are dishonesty. Like if I have to sort of guess what your motivations are, guess whether you're telling me the truth, guess whether you can be trusted at your word. Like I'm just Mm. not trying to deal with it. I don't respect that way of going about things. Um, And I just don't, I don't really have much patience for it. Um, uh, And then I would say after that would be intelligence and, and uh, risk tolerance. You know, Mm. I really like thoughtful people, I like open-minded people. I don't like when people are dogmatic and are just like black and white about things, which is unfortunately a common consequence of our, you know, social media and outrage culture. And um, I really like people who are uh, risk tolerant because, I mean, everybody in our field kind of is. And I think in order to be successful in these fields, you have to be risk tolerant, but uh you know, still mindful of the kind of risks that you're taking, not just sort mm-hmm. of gambling and being a degenerate and, you know, spectate, speculating for the case of, for the sake of speculating. Right. Huh. So do you find that most of your friends do tend to come from the areas that you work in? Or do you have friends from like sports and from, you know, growing up and all of that as well that you stay in pretty constant contact with? I do. I have a pretty broad set of friends, but I would say that the people I'm in the most regular contact with and the people whose counsel I most value, especially before I make any big decision, uh, come from the gambling, poker, investing space. Um, Mm. And it's, you know, a lot of the same people that I grew up with in the game and then have branched out into different areas in their career. Mm -hmm. So have you ever had kind of a big falling out with a friend? from, yes. I don't know, trust issues or kind of what was behind that for you? Yes. I had a uh, ex-roommate who, as far as I knew, we were cool. We were friends. We had a good roommate relationship and we had, you know, done some business together and he, um, you know, had, I had pieces of him and various things that he gambled on. Uh, he had pieces of me and things that I gambled on. And, uh, you know, one day I think there was some I think there was some things going on in his own life that, uh, you know, I won't dive too into the specifics because I'm not trying to like out this person Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, accuse them of anything. But basically they came home one day 
pretty much had a meltdown. I think they may have been out drinking, um, accused me of a bunch of really scummy stuff that I absolutely did not do, including like making up a hand history in a cash game that they had a piece of me in in order to steal from them. Uh, just kind of called me like a selfish scumbag person, just like out of nowhere too. Like somebody, if you'd asked me 20 minutes before, like, how are you and -and so-and-so? I would be like, we're cool. You know, we're good. Um, pretty much melted down. And I told them that like, Hey, you're extremely out of line right now. And you need, you know, some perspective. You need to speak to our mutual friends. Like basically you're, you're out of line. But even in that moment when this person came back and just like melted down on me and accused me of all this terrible stuff, I was like, you know what? He's kind of in a bad place right now. I know there's some Mm. stuff kind of going on in his life. Maybe we'll give it a couple of days and he'll like sleep it off and he'll want to walk that back. And so that's what I did. And I, you know, when I spoke to him again, I was like, Hey, did you want to maybe like walk back what you said or reconsider Mm. any of that? He was just like, no, why should I? Wow. And I was just like, you are beyond out of line. You need to speak to our mutual friends about how to out of line your being. He did. They all told him the case that he was the one that was clearly out of line. And, hmm. uh, but he had no interest in apologizing, no interest in, um, any, um, increase in his, in his awareness about the situation. And I just said, that's it. You're done. And huh. I, I don't speak to him to this day and I don't want anything to do with him. Um, and you know, for all intents and purposes, he's just a, a person in my past. And, uh, you know, even now were he to come and apologize, I think it would be something where it would, uh, it would, uh, reduce some of the animosity that I feel, but the relationship can never truly be repaired. Right. It's almost like, you know, a romantic relationship where if something really bad happens, they can Mm -hmm. come back and, and, you know, try to make fences and maybe you can actually, you know, say, okay, I understand, but it's really hard to accept that kind of risk back into your life. If you think, well, this is a person who can do X or Y or Z. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, when did you last cry in front of another person or by yourself? Um, probably the last time I had a major breakup, we were together for almost like four years. So Mm. when we broke up, you know, tears were involved, I would say is, is probably the easiest, the easiest answer for sure. Yeah. Have you found the last year at all difficult? I'm not sure what your kind of living situation is or how careful you had to be because obviously, you know, you're younger as well and Uh all of that. But what was that like for you with the quarantine and, you know, lockdowns and all of that? Um, well, unfortunately I was, uh, I was living with a couple of friends right before the quarantine hit and in the beginning of the pandemic, one of their fathers caught COVID and passed oh, away in a matter of awful. days, and uh, he wasn't even 60. And so yeah. pretty early in the pandemic, I was extremely paranoid about the disease, mm. not only my own exposure to it, even though I was aware that in my 30s and being an active individual, my risk was fairly low, but I was extremely paranoid about the possibility of getting the disease and passing it on right. to somebody else who would be vulnerable. And that put me in kind of a, I guess you'd say, intense state of mind. However, mm-hmm. I was fortunate that Las Vegas climate-wise is like pretty good almost year round. So I was able to like get outdoors. I picked right. up tennis again. You know, I had a great activity um, and that kind of helped my my social life in a lot of ways mm-hmm. where like we can't go out and spend time indoors with people, but you can go hit tennis, you know, with right. somebody all day long, no problem. Um mm-hmm. I had a really good year in poker. I had a really good year in investing. So it was this weird, almost a little bit of guilt, I would say, associated with having such a good year in terms of like my own life and my own bottom line while Mm -hmm. watching 
terrible things happen to the people around me and to the world around me. So um, kind of a conflicted feeling, but you know, I would be lying if I said that 2020 didn't go well for me personally mm-hmm. it just feels incredibly awkward to admit to that right i've heard that from other people even just on this podcast that that have actually said the exact same thing it's really hard to to say that given the state of the world and how many people have dealt with so much loss but yeah for some people you know it has not been the burden that it's been on other people did you ever find that um that your friends or the people kind of in your circle didn't understand your more intense Uh, feelings about staying safe and keeping other people safe as well. My circle was really good about that. In fact, I I was on the level where occasionally I would make other people around me uncomfortable with how COVID conscious I was. And like Mm -hmm. my friends were so COVID conscious, they would make me uncomfortable sometimes. So there was no issue there. It was like when I tried to branch out of my circle and I would encounter people being like, COVID is just government authority trying Uh, to control your mind, bro. And I was like, mom, like, swing on this dumbass you know like i was just so pissed when i heard this stuff like (laughs) yeah or just like you know i remember when i tried to like date a little bit towards the tail end of the of the um pandemic and i would be like okay you know i'd love to meet you for you know coffee or whatever it is but like we need to sit outside that was something Mm -hmm. i was very strict about and then i would you know and sometimes um you know the girl would be like oh what i want to go do this and that and i'm just like no just like no just you know uh, just stop thinking about yourself Ugh. yes yeah that's the thing that i've never i don't know that's the thing that i have a really hard time with is uh not everyone had to be worried about themselves but the people that i've spoken to who said no you just can't live in fear you got to go out and do right. things and i'm like well it's not about whether you're not living about in fear you, <laughs> exactly yeah. That's kind of it. And that's, I don't know. I'm going to struggle. I'm going to struggle a tiny bit, I think, at the end of this with knowing that some people just didn't care about other people enough somehow. I don't know how to get over that. That's going to be a big emotional hangover, I think, on this. Yeah, there will be a lingering lack of respect for people that behave like that, that is going to take, that may just never go away. It's sort of a like, you know, in, in some way. Yeah, there are the people I know that were mindful of the potential consequences of COVID, and then there were people that just kind of decided that for whatever reason I'm going to throw caution to the wind and you can't let this and that live in fear. Blah 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 blah. And I was kind <laughs> of like, okay, you're like you're in the to me like lower tier of respect and intelligence yeah. in the way that I assess people. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. All right. So if you were to die this evening with no chance of communicating with anyone, is there anything that you'd regret not having said? Um, <laughs> no, because this is Good. weird. I remember once I told you earlier that that whole diet thing landed me in the hospital. And, yeah. Uh, it was very unexpected. It was sort of like I was, I was uh, out socializing with friends and I started to feel this incredibly intense pain in my stomach. It's like so bad I couldn't stand up. And uh, I basically like went back to my apartment and like collapsed and crawled into an elevator and then just sort of like crawled out into the lobby of the building was like oh you know call an ambulance and they like you know they get an ambulance and drag me off to the hospital and like stick me full of needles and start running tests and somewhere around like 5 a.m i felt myself like about to pass out and i remember thinking like i'm probably going to be fine this is you know i'm probably going to wake up everything's going to be fine they're going to tell me some weird thing going on and you're you're fine but this is the first time ever where I felt like I'm going to go to sleep and I might not wake up. So how do I feel about that? And I'm like, I'm good. Nice run, bro. You know, like, <laughs> you know, you made the most of it. <laughs> so no. Wow. 
Okay. So looking back at that whole experience, was it worth it? Like, um, I mean, the short answer is no, but I was attempting something very difficult and I didn't really think I was going to land myself in the hospital. I still, Mm. to this day, I'm not exactly sure what went wrong. They ran a bunch of tests and they were like, we don't really know what to tell you. Mm. Um, because I don't think that I was on such a like restrictive calorie diet that it was like I had starved myself into a hospital. I was on like, Mm. you know, a four or 500 calorie deficit a day. I tried to like find a sort of happy medium. And maybe on this particular day, I I do remember on this particular day, I was hanging out with people and people like to eat real food. And so they were Mm. like, let's go to this in this restaurant. I was like, I can't eat anything here. So maybe that particular day I was truly malnourished and that's what caused me to collapse. I thought that maybe it was something where what can sometimes happen is if you have a lack of uh, fat as a macronutrient in your diet, sometimes you can have like, you know, kidney stone, gallbladder stone kind of stuff. I thought maybe Mm. it could be that, but I never really knew. So I'll put it this way. Had I not landed in a hospital and, and gone through that part, I would say that the experience would have been worth it because it was like really difficult and something I was always curious whether I could do. And I answered that question um, and learned a lot about myself in the process. But if I had known going in that there was a risk that I could really harm myself, well, then no, it was not worth it. Okay. Well, it's good to know that about yourself. It's always nice to answer questions about ourselves that we may not know right. otherwise. And since you, you know, have kind of said all the things that you want to say and you seem to be, a, you know, a pretty honest person with the people in your life, you don't have anything left unsaid. That's a it's a good way to live. It's good yeah. to know that about yourself. Yeah, it was really it was in a way it was kind of cathartic to know like if I die tomorrow, I'm not on my deathbed with a list of regrets and like, oh, I never got to do X, Y, Z. It was literally yeah. like, well, you know, pretty good run for 35. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you ticked a hell of a lot of boxes. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? That was our last question. So thank you for cool. doing this with me. Yeah. And opening up, how did you find it? Yeah, it was, it was very different from most interviews. Like you said, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, for the most part, people are like, well, you know, tell us about the time you dropped the chip in Australia. And I'm like, here we go. You know? <laughs> tell that story again. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, what was it like to win such and such tournament? So this was a really cool change of pace. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm really glad you came on too. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope you like you feel you got to know the person behind the poker and the WPT commentary even better now. And don't forget that the WPT Deep Stacks and 888 Poker are joining together from April 18th to 26th for a special online festival as well. So thank you again to Tony and thank you all for listening. Join me next time on The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 888 Poker.